Uh, good morning, Grace Point. My name is Andrew. Uh, I'm one of the church family here, uh, and it is my joy and privilege to explain God's word this morning. I want to echo Eugene's welcome to you this morning, and my prayer for you and for everyone else here, including myself, is that today, my hope is, we would hear God speak, to meet with God, to do business with God, whether you call Grace Point your home or you've walked into church for the first time, God offers to meet each of us here this morning in His words. That's why at Grace Point we gather together around his word. It's why we read his word, sing his word, listen to his word. His word is central to who we are and what we do. And recently we've been working through Paul's letter to the Roman church. And we've seen that there is good news in Jesus. He is the king who has come who is righting the wrongs of the world. However, we have not treated him rightly as he deserves. And so... We, you and I, are part of that problem, which means bad news for us. If we are to be judged fairly for what we have done, you and I, we're all doomed. But the good news of Romans is that in Jesus there is a new way open, a new way of relating to God, not based on our performance or what we have done, but based on Jesus' performance on our behalf. God declares that those who trust in Jesus' work are justified, that they are right with him, not based on anything we do, but based on the one we trust in, Jesus. That is good news. It's news that Paul is unpacking now in this passage to show, that, show what the life of the one who trusts in Jesus should look like. What does it look like now? It's the gospel of grace. The question that is raised naturally is, So if you and I are not saved by anything that we do, we're saved by grace. Salvation is a gift alone. God loves us and treats us purely based on what Jesus has done, not our work. Then the question is, why does it matter how you and I live today? Another person once said in a catchy slogan, why stop sinning when Jesus keeps forgiving? Are we saved to sin? And I think you know the answer is no. And the passage says that too. But the way that Paul answers that in Romans 6 uses a very odd metaphor. The odd metaphor of slavery. The question is, why does Paul use that image? And as he does so, Paul teaches us that in the Christian life, he teaches us in this passage what to do and why to keep doing it. Uh, There's an outline in the bulletin you got on your way in. It will help you to follow along three parts to this talk. Slavery to whom? Slavery's ends and the life of the slave. Uh, Keep your Bibles open. I would normally have it on the screen, but it's not working today. So follow along step by step. Before we dive into it, let me pray. Father God, we thank you that we can meet you in your word. We ask that your spirit would open our hearts to receive your word with faith and thanksgiving. We ask that you would show us Jesus in your word this morning. Father, help me to preach your word faithfully so that all eyes would be upon you and not me. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Paul starts the passage with the question we were asking in verse 15. If we are not under the law but under grace... Should we sin? If we're saved by grace, not by works, why does it matter how we live as followers of Jesus? Paul answers quickly, 
decisively, passionately, no. By no means, no way. The rest of the passage, Paul is explaining why this is so. He explains this question, the first question in verse 15, by asking another question in verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Paul says that for everyone in some way, we are all slaves. For all of us, there is someone that we obey. The question then is, who do we obey? Who are we slaves to? Verse 16, second half. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. The passage says that there are two options for who you are slaves to this morning. The first is sin. The other option, obedience. Now, I'm not sure if, about you, but I found this option a bit surprising. I would have thought that the two options would have been sin and God. After all, that's what Paul says later in verse 22. Isn't that more natural? But here he says slaves to obedience. And I think, so, I think that Paul does so because Paul wants to highlight what the gospel of grace doesn't mean. It would be easy for the church in Rome so far to think, gosh, I don't need to do anything. Saved, by, saved not by my works, but by grace, but by Jesus' work. I'm going to kick back, relax, and do whatever I want. And that's the last thing that Paul would want the God's people in Rome to believe. Because following Jesus doesn't mean freedom to do whatever you want. Following Jesus means obedience to a new master. And in fact, if you think about it, obedience to God and sin, they're polar opposites. Because sin oversimplified is living with God not as your master, but living as if you are the master. A slave to sin is a slave to self. A slave to sin is a slave to self. And on the other hand, a slave to God, well, they're actually a slave to a different master, a slave to God. So the question becomes, not what do I want to do as if I'm the master, but the question is, what does my new master want me to do? What would please him? What would honor him? How can I obey him? Paul uses the language of obedience here to highlight that your living really matters if God is your master. Because the master you serve changes the way that you live. That's the reason why Paul answers with this odd metaphor. Are we saved to sin? No, 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 no. Well, who are you a slave to is the question that Paul asks. Because how you answer the second question answers the first question. Are we saved to sin? No. Why? I'm a slave to God. I live for God now, not for myself. I live not for my desires. I live for God, my new master, for his desires. Of course, I'm not saved to sin. Sin is the opposite of what my new master loves. And that's where verse 17 and verse 18 come in. It talks about the church in Rome when they first began to believe in Jesus what was really happening was that they were exchanging masters. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, 
you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. They once were slaves to sin. They lived for self and any master other than God, but now they've come to obey from their very hearts a new pattern of teaching, one that teaches of Jesus the Savior on whose works we rely. He enables the way for an exchanging of masters. And I think that's why NIV says that very last bit there, has now claimed your allegiance. An allegiance away from one master to sin, away from that ends allegiance to a new master, God. And that's exactly where verse 18 goes. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Slaves to whom? They were slaves to sin, but now set free to be slaves to God. Living in obedience, living righteously, doing what is right in their new master's eyes. Let me stop for a second. I don't know about you, but I feel like this whole metaphor of slavery is a bit of a stretch, and it's a bit weird, isn't it? Like to say my relationship with God, who, who you and I call Father, is only just like a slave and a master, well, isn't that a bit degrading? Doesn't that miss the other pictures of the way that we relate to God? And Paul's answer in verse 19 is yes. It's just a metaphor, just an example with limitations. It contains some truth, but not all truth. Verse 19, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Everyday life because slavery was a normal social class in that day. Undoubtedly, some of the Christians in Rome hearing this letter were slaves as well. Paul takes something that they understand from their everyday life experience to explain a sense of our relationship with God. He doesn't say this to encourage slavery today. The slavery metaphor also isn't meant to communicate that relating to God is somehow degrading or dehumanizing or that is driven by fear or that it confines and traps people like normal slavery would. No, no, no. It's not meant to say any of those things. But what the slavery metaphor is trying to reinforce is that when you become a follower of Jesus, it means you have a new master in your life, a new master whom you serve, a master who is not you and is not me. We are not free to live, therefore, for ourselves. We are set free to live for a new master. The very act of following Jesus implies a changed life, one that shows that you have a new master. But the crazy thing that I do in my life is act every day as if I am the master. And God is somehow my my sidekick, my little helper. He's there to make my life easier, there to make my dreams come true. Yeah, I read the Bible in the morning. Yeah, yeah, I, I pray that God's will would be done. But when I look at my life, I see myself more often motivated by self-interest than his interest. My fears tell me that I'm more nervous about what people think of me than what people think of him. I often ask him to do more for me than consider what I can do for him. And so functionally, I think I often live as if I am the master and God is my slave. It's a good reminder 
to me, me and maybe you this morning, who is the slave and who is the master? But let me encourage you as well. This passage would be terrible news if God was a bad master. But the Bible is clear. It tells us that the master we serve, that God is good and kind, and he knows what he's doing. In fact, he knows too what you and I are made for. After all, he did make us. And he made us for something far better than for living for ourselves. And we see that in the second part of our talk, Slavery's Ends. The question here is, where does slavery to each master, to sin or to God, where does that end up? Where does that lead to? Because what Paul does next in this passage is central to this section. He asks the people of, of God in Rome to do something. Verse 19, second half. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves of righteousness leading to holiness. He encourages them to look back at their lives before they follow Jesus of how they used to give themselves to other masters and encourages them now in the same way, give that to your new master. Once again, Paul doesn't say slave to God here, but slave to righteousness. Just like earlier he said slave to obedience. It's again to highlight the relationship between the master you serve and the way that you live. We obey a new master, therefore we act righteously. We do what is right in our master's eyes. Paul tells them, look at your past to know how to live now. What was it like as you lived for other masters? As you were a slave to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness? You could imagine being ravenous to fill your appetites. Perhaps an appetite for money. Perhaps an appetite for being valued in the eyes of other people. Perhaps an appetite driven by self-interest. We rarely need to tell people to do what they want. In fact, usually that's the default of people. Or maybe it's just me. I automatically do what I want to fill my cravings. If Popo is craving K barbecue, you best believe that I'm getting the grill out soon. Paul is saying, just as you were ravenous to fulfill your own desires to do what you want, be ravenous now to fulfill God's desires. Think about the things for yourself that you have ravenously gone after, sought, desired, had ambition for. That same hunger, that same desire that drove you then for those things, take that, but now for God, is the picture that Paul gives here. Be a slave to righteousness. Be ravenous to do what is good in God's eyes. Why? Well, the question here is, where does slavery to sin or slavery to God lead to? What are their ends? Because where they lead to, is how Paul motivates us. It's the why we keep doing what we do. Verse 20 to 21. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. When the church in Rome served masters other than God, what benefit did they reap? What did it result in? 
the way they lived resulted in death, eternal death. They didn't achieve good things. They didn't go good places because they weren't made for eternal death. They didn't live as they were made to. The only thing they were free to at the beginning of that verse is to live unrighteously. They were freed from the control of righteousness. The only option they could do was they could not please God in their lives. That way of living, can I say, doesn't help others. That way of living doesn't even help yourself. It definitely doesn't please God. Being a slave to self and sin means you are enslaved to live for yourself, which ironically is actually terrible for yourself. And it's terrible for those around you and terrible for treating God right. Imagine this world. Imagine this world. Imagine if people all lived for themselves. Maybe it's not too hard to imagine. But the society that they begin to form is a bunch of individuals with competing agendas. I live for myself. You live for yourself. We best hope that we want the same thing. Or at least that what you want and what I want doesn't clash with each other. Otherwise, you and I were going to war. Our relationship becomes a tug of desires. Who wants what they want more than the other person? Who pulls harder? Who is more ravenous than the other one? What world does that end up with? It ends up with a dog-eat-dog world, ruthless and savage, not good for us, not good for each other, not good for God. That's what happens when we're masters of ourselves. The only thing we're freed from is righteousness. We were made by God to live for so much more than self and sin because the result of living for self and sin is eternal death. But, verse 22, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you you reap leads to where? The benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. This is what you and I were made for. Made in our proper order, where we are not the masters, but God is our masters. We are his servants, his slaves. We are set free from sin and self, freed to serve our new master obediently, doing what is right in his eyes. If you once again thought about where does that lead, if everyone embodied this, what kind of world would that produce? That's a world characterized by service. People who seek to do what is right and what is good, not just for themselves, but for God and for others. Imagine what that would look like in your workplaces, in your schools, in our governments, in our global relationships, if they were characterized by serving the other. Imagine the way that we would speak to each other, the way that we would act to each other, the way that we would think about each other. I don't know about you, but that's a world that I want to live in. That's a good world. That's a world that works because it's a world where people live like how they were made to live in their proper order, servants, slaves under God, serving each other. And its ends, where does it lead to? Once again, 
life eternal. It doesn't just lead only to life when Jesus comes back in the far off future, although that is amazing. It shapes us today, right now. It shapes us to be holy, being set apart for God. We have to live differently from the world, obviously because we serve a different master than the world. When the world lives for self and sin as their master, it leads to verse 19's ever-increasing wickedness. They live wickedly, producing more wickedness, leading to more wickedness. That's all it produces. When everyone's their own master, dog-eat-dog world. But if we all had the same master, if we were all together under the same God, we begin to desire the same things. We begin to desire what our master desires. I think that's really compelling and beautiful, but I don't really think that's going to happen in this world before Jesus comes back. But what it does do is that it helps me to long for Jesus to come back, where he will usher in a world that is characterized by service, where we are all together united under the one master, longing for the same thing. But it also helps shape my view of church, how I begin to see coming on Sundays to hub groups during my week. It shapes the way I see church. As I gather with other people who say they love and serve the same master as me, I then become, I then realize that I am part of a church that is there not to serve me, but to serve God, a different master. The obligation I have as part of church is to serve side by side with you guys, side by side together as equal slaves and servants together, serving not an individual here, not the preacher on stage, not a certain person at church, but serving our one great master together. We put aside some differences to actually get on about serving the one master we believe in. Paul sums our passage up nicely in the last verse in this passage. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Two masters, sin, God. Two destinations, two ends, death, eternal life. Two ways to attain those ends, wages earned, graciously gifted. The good news of Jesus is um, never earned like wages worked. The good news of Jesus is only graciously given as a free gift. And so, inherently, the good gift of Jesus is a scandal to justice because you and I don't deserve that gift. If we got what you and I deserve, if we got what we deserved, our wages would be death. But when we entrust ourselves to Jesus and his work, when we put God in his rightful place as our master and not ourselves, that's the gift of God. Completely unmerited, a gift that gives eternal life, one that unites us as we are united in Jesus Christ our Lord. Two options of who to be enslaved to, two places where they lead, two means by which they come, two options. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, someone who entrusts themselves and their life to Jesus the King, can I encourage you on taking Jesus up on his offer? A gift is only really good if it is received. A gift left under the Christmas tree 
is a gift unwrapped. It's a gift unexperienced, a gift unenjoyed. You will never be good enough for God. You have not treated him, others, or God the way that they deserve. But that's why the good news of Jesus is so good. He invites all people, even you, to come under his kingship, to become his servant, to become even more than that, to become his very own precious, beloved child. He is a good master, a far better ruler of our lives than you or I could ever be. Come to him today. For the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is a good master who knows what you're made for. He wants you and those around you to flourish properly as you were made. And if you're not, un- not sure about that, that's understandable. This is some pretty big stuff we're talking about. Talking about eternity and who you serve for the rest of your life. It's a big decision you want to consider carefully. Can I encourage you to work that out with others though, not just by yourself? And doing that steadily and consistently. Keep coming and hearing about Jesus here at church. Maybe ask the person who brought you along about what that means, what it means for them to follow Jesus. Open the Bible for yourself. Pray to God. Eternal life is too important to leave on the back burner. Do not leave the gift unopened. But I want to finish today considering what does it look like for us today as Christians to live as slaves of God? Last section of this talk. And the first thing I want to say is that throughout this passage, we are first and foremost passive recipients of God's grace to us. God has taken every step before us to bring, him, bring us to himself. In verse 18 and verse 22, it says, You have been set free from sin. We've been freed. A prisoner does not set oneself free. Someone must come from outside the prison with the key or a big enough crowbar to set them free. We are under grace. It is only by the gift of God that we are ever set free. It means that you and I are no better than anyone else. We only testify of God's goodness to us. It's so important to see how being passive recipients is important to this passage because uh, that's the context of the one verse in the middle, verse 19, where Paul tells us to do something. It's only in the context where God makes the first step towards us, we receive his grace, and then we live in response to it. He comes first, we respond. His good news comes first, we receive it with faith and trust. He serves us, we serve him and others. God always takes the first step. But the obvious question then is, how do you and I be slaves of God? What do we actually do, Popo? How do we work that out? What is obedient and righteous living? How can I serve God, my master, now, today, this week, as I go out into my week? And the answer is, a bit of a simple one, but important. The answer is, know your master. It's simple but important. What's God like? He wants us to know him. We're in a relationship with him, and he shows us who he is by his word. As you read his word this week, ask yourself this question. What does this passage tell me about who God is? What does this passage 
tell me about who God is. If you want to live righteously, to do right in the eyes of your master, well, you've got to know what your master is like, who he is. A great goal for myself and a prayer that I often pray for myself is that God might help me to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Love what he loves, hate what he hates. He loves showing mercy. So, love showing mercy too. Surely that shapes the way that you and I approach those who have wronged us. Forgiving someone is at the very heart of God himself. He hates injustice. So, hate injustice too. For the mistreated and oppressed, but also on your tax returns too. He hates injustice. As you read God's word this week, ask that question. What does this passage tell me about who God is? What does he love? What does he hate? And begin to love what he loves and begin to hate what he hates. Remember the good news of the gospel of what has been done for you and go live as a slave to God at school, at work, around your home, with your friends, in all places, at all times, to all people, not just those we like. As you make choices, ask the question, what does God love? What does God hate? How can I learn to be just like my master? And if you think about the original context of this whole section, Paul asked the first question, right? The big question, shall we sin because we're under grace? Almost at the question, God, what's okay and what's not okay? What can I do and what can't I do? What are the boundary lines, God, of what my freedom can do? And I hope you're beginning to see now that why Paul answers using the illustration of slavery. Because someone who is trying to work out the boundary lines, trying to push the limits to see how far they can go, how far is too far, God? Well, that's legalism. What I'm allowed and not allowed to do, how far can I go? I want a rule book. That's legalism. In the context of a gracious relationship with the Father, the question is not how far can I go, but how do I love my Father? I don't want to test the limits of what I can do in God's house. I want to enjoy His household. I want to enjoy serving Him. I want to be just like him. I want to love what my father loves. I want to hate what my father hates. And in fact, trying to test the boundaries to see how far you can go, to see how far your freedoms are, well, that actually sounds a lot like slavery. You're trying to work out where does the cage end? You see God's household then as a cage restricting you. And that is not the picture that is given here. When you do that, when I do that, I forget what I've been freed from. And I forget what I've been freed into. I've been freed to a deep and intimate, a safe relationship with the Father. I get the opportunity to be like him, to love what he loves and hate what he hates. And one last thing before the end of this talk, the last point of application. Verse 19 again just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. 
Look at your past to know how to live today. You want to do this carefully, not in too lengthy amounts of time, but there is value in looking at who we once were and how we serve the things we used to serve so as to take the same energy, the same drive, the same single-mindedness that we once had serving those things and now serve our Father with that. For me, it was and still is so easy to serve myself. I put my goals and ambitions quickly before other things. I'm almost OCD in how fixated I am on my desires. Paul challenges me in two ways. Firstly, popo. You are freed from that for now. You don't actually have to live for that. That's not the best way to live. You can actually live differently now. It's not what you were made for. It doesn't lead anywhere good. Popo, stop. Thank God that you're freed from that. And secondly, Popo, take that same drive, that same energy, that voracious hunger to self-satisfy, and take that and seek righteous living for God the Father, for your new master. Be ambitious and hungry to serve him, to see him made famous, to see him glorified, to see his will be done. Be just as hungry for that as you are at serving yourself, Popo. Something you might like to do this week, perhaps attached to your Bible reading that we talked about earlier, is think on how you used to or still gravitate towards serving other things than God and ask, what have you been freed from? What have you been freed from? Take that, thank God that you're freed from it, and then run from it. Thank God that you've been freed from it, and then run from it. If you did that every day this week, that would be seven things before next Sunday. Seven praise points, seven realizations of what you've been freed from, seven things to keep running from daily, seven things that will that to channel that same energy you pursued them with into serving your new master Jesus. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. And remember, as we talk about being slaves to God, let us remember first that Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again. Even when we didn't deserve it, he loved us first. He showed us that he is a good and kind master as the master stepped down to love and serve us first. He is a good, kind, and loving Father, he wants what's best for us, so let us this week seek to serve him as slaves of God, obedient to him, living righteously for him, living rightly in his eyes, doing what he wants, to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Let's pray and ask God for his help to do that. Father God, thank you for your kindness, your love, your service to us in Jesus. Would your spirit move us this week to see you as our master? Help us to know who our master is, to know, to begin to realize what he loves and what he hates. Help us to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. And help us to give ourselves completely to serving our masters, not sin or ourselves. And Father, we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.